This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast, a podcast with a worldwide listenership that explores the broad world of preservation from every angle, from drones to mudlarking and everything in between. Now, let's get preserving. Lace up your skates and join us in the rink for this week's PreserveCast as we talk with Margot Atwell, author of Derby Life, a crash course in the incredible sport of roller derby about the history of this sport and her experience competing, as well as how she got started in roller derby and what prompted her to write this book about the fascinating sport. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Today, we are excited to uh, lace up our skates and talk with Margot Atwell, who is a writer, writer, editor, publisher, community funding expert, um, all those sorts of things, but for our purposes, also the author of Derby Life, a crash course in the incredible sport of roller derby. Um, so we're going to dive into all that, figure out what the story of all this is, and and the the history and the the important sort of cultural aspect of of this story. Everything has a history, um, and so we're going to dive into the history of this today. So, Margot, before we get started, though, we love to get to know people and kind of like what them brought what brought them into this. You are a uh, non-traditional guest of PreserveCast and that we talked to a lot of preservationists and historians. Um, and obviously you dove into the history of roller derby, but you have a very different background than a lot of people that we talked to, which is which is really cool. So where did you grow up? What led you to working in writing, editing, publishing? What are you currently working on? And then, then we'll get into the derby stuff. Uh, thanks so much. And I'm really excited to be here on PreserveCast. Um, I grew up uh, right outside New York City, which is where I live now, uh, based in Brooklyn for the last 15 years. And uh, let's see, I've always been a reader since since I knew what words were. Uh, I was obsessed with reading, storytelling. Um, and as soon as I realized that there was somewhere, someone between writer and reader, and that that was a professional job that might pay a salary, that was the thing I most wanted. So um, I went to school and studied uh, writing and, um, and English lit. And then after that, I moved back to New York and got into book publishing. And what was your first job in the field? Uh, my first job was uh, an assistant at a literary agency. Um, and then after that, I spent seven years at a very, very small book publisher and kind of wore all the hats. <laughs> And what do you currently do now? Just because people are probably curious what you actually, your day job is. Yeah. Um, I just recently became the executive director and publisher at Feminist Press. And just so people are curious, what does Feminist Press publish? What would people be familiar with or where, where can they find the work? Yeah. Uh, well, Feminist Press has a website, feministpress.org. It's a 52-year-old uh, nonprofit independent feminist publisher, the oldest feminist publisher in the world. We publish fiction, nonfiction, uh, memoir, and um, and other books that are really moving the conversation about intersectional feminism forward. Um, our vision is to help create a world where everyone sees themselves represented in a book. Very cool. So um, good, good segue here, because we're going to talk about a book that inspired this conversation. So, you know, I was, I was, um, telling you before we we hit record, in the interest of full disclosure, I, I came to this because my wife Sarah is uh, 
is currently fresh meat with a uh, a derby team, uh, Frederick Roller Derby here in, in Frederick, Maryland. And, um, you know, I, I sort of like I, I'm the killjoy in the family wherever every time something happens, I'm like, I wonder what the history of that is. Um, and so then I have to dive deep into that. And I started looking these things up and came across you in this great book. And we'll put a link in the show notes so people can pick up a copy of themselves. It's it's really super approachable and it kind of takes derby from all different perspectives. So not just the history, but sort of how it works and how you improve your game and all this kind of cool stuff. So it's a, it's a really fun read. And I think derby is kind of having this renaissance right now. Um, never really went away, but it's, it definitely is, is pretty, there's a lot of energy behind it. So let's talk about the history of Derby. You talk about this in the book and I think it's so interesting how it all kind of comes together. I mean, you go back to like the first roller skate. Um, but, uh, Tell us about how like Derby comes together and Mr. Seltzer and all that kind of stuff. Absolutely. And um, I think roller derby has such a fascinating history. Uh, I didn't originally intend to go back as far as the creation of roller skates, but I just kept finding these really interesting through lines as I did the research. And um, originally I had budgeted, you know, a few thousand words for the history chapter, but um, as I started pulling on the threads, I just went deeper and deeper. I ended up doing a number of interviews with people who were foundational in different versions of the sport. Um, and at a certain point, I realized with some surprise and quite a lot of pride that I was actually adding new primary sources to the history of roller derby. Um, and I think that that's one of the things I'm most proud about uh, for this book. Um so the history of roller derby, um, skipping past the invention of the roller skate, um, <laughs> in the 1920s and 1930s, um, there was this fad for sort of like human spectacle endurance races and endurance contests, like um, these like dance marathons, I think, are sort of like lingering in popular memory, where uh, a whole bunch of couples would just start dancing and just try to keep dancing for as long as possible without like dropping or, um, or tapping out and the winners would get a prize. And, uh, this became like a popular spectator spectacle. Um, and as the country went into the great depression, these became more popular, both for the performers who, got fed and got a chance to win some money, but also for audiences who could pay a little bit of money and get quite a lot of entertainment value for their, for their money. Um, and then in the thirties, Leo Seltzer, who was in entertainment, he had a string of movie theaters, um, read this article. I, I've never been able to find the article and I, I hope someday someone can show it to me, but, um, he read an article and it was quoted that, um, that he read a stat that 97% of Americans had tried roller skating at some point. Yeah. I saw again. that in your book and I was like that. Again, I started thinking about that. I'm like, that means like the farmer in Peoria was like roller skating. Like when you right. really start putting those numbers together, I think you even say in the book, like you sort of editorialize, like seems unreasonable or something like yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just, uh, it was important for the context, but I've yeah. never been able to back that one up. Um, <laughs> But he read this stat about the popularity of roller skating in America. So he decided to create this endurance spectacle of roller skating. And um, 
he envisioned it as the transcontinental roller derby, where teams of two, uh, a man and a woman, would compete to try to cover the full distance between, I believe it was New York and San Diego. So like 57,000 laps over the course of like a month or six weeks. Um, And they would just like alternate in teams of two, 11 hours a day, just skating laps again and again and again. Um, And he launched this, and I think he sold something like 20,000 tickets to the Chicago Coliseum over the course of the run. And so he kept putting them on um, and kind of retooling it and eventually realized that actually the audiences went the most wild when people crashed into each other. So eventually he kind of threw out the like long distance piece of it and kept the endurance and the spectacle. Um, And he even went further one time when sports writer Damon Runyon was in the article, in the audience, um, and people were crashing into each other. And uh, according to something I read, they sat down that night and the two of them worked out a rule set that um, maximized crashing. Um, so the rules they came up with that night of a jammer on each team who scores points, trying to race past blockers who are trying to knock them down or take them out. Um, that rule set is quite similar to the one that we still have today. Um, and it dates all the way back to the mid to late 1930s. Now, a lot of people perceive or, or presume, or and maybe rightly so, that derby is sort of preeminently a women's sport, or it started that way. Is that always the case? And how does that, how does that, what's the through line with that today? Yeah. Um, roller derby is quite unique in that women were involved from the absolute beginning. And back in the 1930s, there were not a lot of sports that welcomed and uh, and accepted women players to say nothing of contact sports, which this had turned into by the end of the 1930s. So back then it was alternating jams where um, women would play and then men would play and women would play and men would play. Um, and uh, just a caveat here is that um, the understanding of gender was different back then. So sure. I just want to like call that out um, when I speak about historical roller derby. Um, But there were women involved all the way through. And um, when I interviewed Jerry Seltzer, who was the son of Leo, the founder, um, he said that at one point, um, the men in Derby actually said, hey, like, we're doing really well. We don't need the women anymore. And he said, you don't like women are part of roller derby. So through the 30s, through the early 70s, women were part of the sport and part of the fabric of it. And some of the most iconic players. Um, And then roller derby for a variety of reasons, which I'd be happy to talk about, um, kind of fell by the wayside for a few decades. Yeah. Why did it? Let's, let's talk about that. Yeah. Why did it fall by the wayside? Because now it's, it's very in. So what, what, let's talk about these ebbs and flows and it's like any sport, I guess, but in, in particular, it seemed like it kind of had like a, a down period. But if you talk like you talk to like my grandmother, who's in her 80s, she was like, oh, my gosh, I loved roller derby. Right. And so and then you talk to my parents and they're like, oh, yeah, I kind of remember it. And then it's like now it's kind of back. So it it's generational. But what happened? Yeah. Um, it's so fascinating to me how the rise of roller derby mirrors and was, I think, in a lot of ways caused by the rise of certain technologies. And I talk about this somewhat in my book, but um Leo Seltzer, coming from an entertainment background, like immediately grasped the power of television, even as far back as the mid to late 1940s. And um, 
his roller derby, which was run as a for-profit enterprise owned by him, um, used television to expand and grow. And at that time, that was really nascent uh, technology. Um, and they didn't really understand the power. So there's a funny part of the book where they um, they had a, a roller derby game that was televised um, and they didn't think to put anyone on the phone lines. So phones were just ringing off the hook. And uh, even though they only sold 200 tickets that first night, uh, the next day there were so many people showing up at the armory that they needed to get crowd control, like, uh, like police on horseback to help manage the crowd. Um, and then Jerry Seltzer's version um, used the early technology of videotapes um, uh, to, to popularize itself and spread. Um, but I would say that the, throughout the history of roller derby, there have been a few moments where just sort of like bad luck or outside forces um, or or a mistake just almost scuttled the whole thing. For example, um, Leo Seltzer had this television deal with CBS. Um, he didn't renew it and he thought he could get another one. But um, but by then, roller derby was sort of like overexposed as a fad. He couldn't get another TV deal. And he just kind of ran out of steam. So he was about to shut down roller derby in the 50s when his son, who had started being an announcer, was like, what if I took a crack at this? Um, and Leo's like, I can't give you any money, but like, you're welcome to try. Um, and then Jerry picked it up and ran with it, um, coming at it from an even more sort of like theatrical performance spe uh, spectacle angle. Um, and he ran the next big wave of roller derby, which was, I think a lot of people remember this because it's what people saw in the wee hours of television broadcasts, um, you know, people like throwing each other over the rails and theatrical hits and big personalities and names. Um, so that was kind of the second era, whereas the first one, um, Leo really saw it much more as a sport um, and like less of the sort of like flashy, campy pieces of it. Um, and would you say we're in the third era now then? Or... I would say actually we're moving into the fourth, um, okay, which so I can talk about the, in a second. Yeah, when's yeah. the third and then the fourth? Yeah, I'm curious yeah, where so we're at now. The second era was uh, was Jerry Seltzer's roller derby. He ran that for about 15 years, and again, like just as he was starting to like really break through, there was a big feature in uh, Sports Illustrated in 1969, which is sort of like the holy grail of a, a sport. Um, there was a book written by Frank DeForge, which is uh, Five Strides on the Bank Track that came out in, I think, 71 um, with a mainstream publisher. Um, but a combination of money woes and um, actually the high cost of energy in the early 1970s ended up just completely killing roller derby dead almost. Um, you know, there were bits and pieces between 73 and early 2000s. But um, but yeah, it was so expensive to buy gas, which, you know, for a traveling enterprise, that was a huge problem. Um, and actually, roller derby tended to travel to the Northeast in the winter. And apparently it just got so expensive to heat the venues that a lot of their dates got canceled and they were they were kind of operating on a shoestring. And so ultimately they just kind of ran out of money and had to stop. Um 
The third era of roller derby uh, was born in Austin, Texas in 2000-2001. There's this wild personality called Devil Dan or Dan Policarpo that I actually got to interview for my book. He came out of rock music. He had just left a band and he had this idea of roller derby as like spectacle, cultural event, not really as a sport. Um, you know, he just thought that there were pieces of it that could be really interesting to kind of remix and um, engage audiences with. And he had a few um, kind of kickoff meetings in bars in Austin in December 2000 and January 2001. In the second meeting, there were about 50 women there um, because he envisioned it as a women's sport. Um, and that night they set up four teams, they picked team captains, they picked themes based on a few bars, um, on, I think Congress street in Austin, Texas. And they envisioned it as this, like, like punk rock, rockabilly, um, campy spectacle, um, and then set about making it happen. Um, and so the third, uh, modern era of roller derby was really envisioned as this, like, well, sort of two different versions. Um, there was the, you know, like punk rock spectacle piece, but there was also this like really strong through line of like women's empowerment, um, a place that women could like do something and become strong and kind of put on a persona that they didn't necessarily feel like um, they got to wear around in day-to-day life. So you would say that that's the moment when that piece of it kind of takes off? Because th- there's a very strong component of that nowadays, I feel like. I mean, absolutely, I think it's, it's sort of like this, you know, like you said, like sort of people empowering each other um, through sort of the sport and, and everybody coming to it, no matter where your background is, being able to kind of empower yourself through it. But that's sort of that kind of starts in that Austin moment, not not prior to that. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm I'm sure that if you talk to some of the female skaters from sure. the fifties and seventies, they'd probably say a similar thing. Um, but whereas prior versions of roller derby, it was professionalized. People were skating for money. It was owned by a person or an individual. Um, modern roller derby after the swift exit of Dan Policarpo was started for love. It was a hobby. It was a passion. It was a calling. And the Women's Flat Track Derby Association, which was created in the mid-2000s, they have a slogan of uh, by the skater for the skater. And that was really meant to protect skaters against potential exploitation or things like that. Um, So, and when I say that we're in the fourth era, um, this is speculation on my part, but I believe we're moving into a new era of it as roller derby comes back from the pandemic. I'm seeing a lot of shifts. You know, people took some time to step back. Skaters rested their bodies after sometimes a decade or more of beating up on them pretty seriously. Um, And also a lot of leagues had kind of reckonings around were they serving their members? Were they including people and, um, creating spaces that felt safe and diverse and inclusive and equitable, or were they reinforcing and replicating some of the power dynamics in our modern culture? So I feel like if we talk again in five years, we might see a slight difference in Derby, but um, 
But yeah, I'm, I'm the only one who said that, that we might be in a fourth era here. Well, I, I think you have the authority to say it. you did write Derby Life. Um, and so speaking of which, um, I, we, we didn't really mention this, but at what point did you come in? I guess you came in in the, in the post-Austin third wave. Um, yeah. And, you, and we didn't mention it, but it's Margot M. Atwell, which is like the best thing for, I mean, it's, it's, that, that is like the coolest name for an editor and a publisher. <laughs> like, of course you're M. Um, so let's talk for a second about how you got into it. And then maybe we'll talk about names, take a break, come back, talk about the future of it, that kind of thing and the inclusivity of it all. But um, uh, how'd you get into it? And then, yeah, let's start there. How did you get into roller derby? Yeah, um, it's funny. It was actually kind of a mistake. Um, <laughs> I had been a, an ice skater and an ice hockey player and athlete growing up. And then, you know, during college, I got really invested in writing and um, poetry. And, um, you know, after college, I was working to try to get into the book publishing industry. And the summer after college, while I was living at home, my mom gave me this piece, uh, this uh, New York Times piece, you know, clipping articles like parents sometimes do or did back then. Um, and it talked about Gotham, at that time, Gotham Girls Roller Derby. It, they've since changed their name to Gotham Roller Derby. Um, and so I read this and absolutely fell in love, was completely entranced and immediately was trying to find out how I could see about. So I think that I read that piece in 2005 and, um, and saw my first bout in 2006. Um, but it turns out actually my mom had no idea of me playing roller derby. She just wanted to let me know that a Smith college alum was doing this. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so um Thanks, mom. <laughs> and then you made the jump from like most people watching it to I have to do this. And then then you're M dash at well. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, a friend and I went out to see about in 2006 and we were just instantly in love. We were, you know, coming up with roller derby names and trying to figure out when tryouts were uh, like instantly that night on the way home. And, um, the one problem was I didn't know how to roller skate. I had right. been, uh, an inline and, uh, and hockey skate person. Um, so I bought my first pair of abysmally cheap roller skates that literally fell apart while I was skating on them. Um, and then just started skating around in my neighborhood and like the uneven sidewalks, like falling down in front of my neighbors. Um, it was, uh, if I ever had a, a movie about my life, that montage would be really, uh, <laughs> really key. Um, and do you still, do you still skate? Do you still do roller derby? Um, I do still skate. Uh, I don't do roller derby anymore. Um, after over a decade, I had chalked up a couple too many concussions and I wanted to, um, hang up my, you know, my roller derby pads before, <laughs> before I, uh, wiped out my ability to write and read. Yeah. That's uh, important. Um, yeah. Speaking of writing and reading, when did the idea come about for the book? And we'll maybe talk about that and then we'll take a break. But like, when did you go from this is great? I love this experience. I'm enjoying myself to like, I mean, obviously you have a passion for writing. So it kind of makes sense that you would take this and then turn it into a book. But at what point were you like, this needs to be a book? I so especially in the early days of modern roller derby, there was this real, like everyone pulling together, creating the systems from the ground up feeling and camaraderie that I loved. Uh, there was a website um, called Derby News Network that um, 
we could never get coverage in sports pages um, because people were like, oh, women strapping on roller skates, wearing fishnets and hitting each other. Oh my gosh, what will they think of next? It was just basically every piece that was written about us. So uh, a few people from different leagues and different parts of the sport started up our own roller derby news network to, um, to talk about it as a sport and try to like create what we weren't seeing elsewhere. And I got involved and I did some like live text casting and, um, and writing and editing for that site. And then um, they wanted to start a, a like life and culture site. So I helped them co-found that. And then I led it as managing editor and then eventually um, ran the whole thing for a few years. And I loved it. I loved publishing people's stories, how to's just kind of like engaging with the sport in that way and creating the things we wanted to see. Um, and then at a certain point, I, I wanted to create the book I wish I'd found when I got into the sport. So I actually, um, I pitched Susie hot rod. I was like, you could totally do this. And she's like, I don't want to write a book. Why don't you do it? Um, it was like, Oh, and I sat with that for a while. Um, and then I realized actually I probably could do that. Um, and as I got into a new job and my life got more chaotic and a lot of the original team members from Derby News Network and DerbyLife.com uh, kind of like fell by the wayside, I realized that um, Websites are really temporary, but uh, books to a degree are forever. And so I I decided that I really did want to create something tangible um, as like my love letter to the sport that had given me so much. Yeah, well, it definitely come, comes across as such. And it's a great read. And we'll put a, a link in the show notes for people who can pick it up if you're just interested in the sport, but also the history of it, which kind of goes in depth there. And maybe we'll take a break, come back, talk a little bit about, you know, we, we do a lot here about preserving place. And I'm curious if you have thoughts on places that associated with Derby that perhaps should be protected or preserved and, and how we preserve the, the story of this sport. Um, and we'll do that right here on PreserveCast. Historic preservation can't happen without skilled tradespeople to perform the work, and there's a critical need right now for those tradespeople. The Campaign for Historic Trades, powered by Preservation Maryland, is working to meet that need by strengthening apprenticeship opportunities within historic trades. In partnership with the National Park Service's Historic Preservation Training Center and Conservation Legacy, the campaign is currently recruiting for NPS Traditional Trades Apprenticeship Program, or TTAP. TTAP is an intensive 20-week apprenticeship that provides young adults the chance to learn historic trade skills while working on America's most iconic historic sites. Multiple positions are open for the 2022 season at national parks across the country. Visit historictrades.org for more information on TTAP and how to apply today. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast today. We're thrilled to be joined by Margot M. Atwell. Um, and we've been talking all about um, the history of roller derby and her book, Derby Life, a crash course in the incredible sport of roller derby. Um, so, you know, I, it's, it's, it's fascinating to hear about sort of the history of it and how you put all that together. You know, we, do, we deal a lot in 
you know, here PreserveCast and, and the people who listen to this and sort of preserving place and, and places associated with stories. I'm curious how well the the places of Derby have been preserved, particularly like the early stuff. Are there places that could be protected? Um, you know, have you been able to visit like some of these early sites? What is the what's the landscape of Derby look like in terms of the history of it? Yeah. Um I would say that when I've been digging into the history of Derby, it's been much more connecting with the people who have been big players, um, sometimes literally and sometimes figuratively, uh, in the foundation and um, and continuance of the sport. Um, especially in the modern era, uh, roller derby doesn't really own its own spaces. Um, we're often in other people's spaces. And um, actually space is one of the biggest struggles for roller derby right now. Um, it's really, really expensive and difficult to find a space that is sufficient for roller derby. Um, and actually that's why I joined the board of Gotham um, about four years ago was because our lease at the warehouse we skated in was about to come up and I knew that it was going to be a big undertaking to find a new place. Uh, I originally thought, hey, maybe we could buy. And then I um, sort of ran smack into the realities of New York City real estate. And uh, that dream quickly died. Um, and it's all pretty much flat track now. Um, but there, talk about the difference between that. I mean, some of the early sites or any of those sites like associated with Leo Seltzer and Jerry, do any of those still exist? Have you been to any of them where some of the earliest roller derbies were played or are those pretty much all gone? Um, and don't quote me on this, but I think that the Chicago Coliseum was torn down. I'm not positive. Um, I, I haven't been there in any way. Um, yeah, I have not actually visited any of the early sites affiliated with um, with roller derby. I do talk about some of the New York armories or um, mm -hmm. Madison Square Garden. Uh, roller derby played there for a few years back in the, um, I think the like late 40s version. Um, and gosh, I wish I could see roller derby at Madison Square Garden. That that would be such a dream. Um, yeah. But that's not really where we are right now. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think because, or actually, I, sorry, you asked about um, flat track versus bank track. Right. Um, the the forties through the or the thirties through the seventies version was bank track, which means that the track slants up on the outside, which means that skaters can use gravity to increase their speed and really, really get up. A quick head of steam. Um, but bank tracks are expensive to create, uh, to store. They take a long time to move. And when roller derby was reborn at the, as this kind of scrappy community led by the skaters for the skaters version, um, people wanted to be able to start it wherever they were. And um, so that was often a local skate rink, a high school gymnasium, um, sometimes a warehouse. Uh, but yeah, in the early days of, of third wave roller derby, um, flat track was just so much more accessible. And um, so there are a number of bank tracks, but um, it's absolutely dwarfed by the number of flat track leagues, which I think at the high watermark was over 2000 worldwide. Um, I'm not sure if that many leagues still exist. Um, especially as we're all sort of like figuring out what it looks like in this wave of the pandemic. Um, but yeah, I think flat track and adapting to flat track 
enabled this like wild spread of roller derby all around the world. Yeah. And I think the point, too, about like the these historic sites is it's tough because this is so ephemeral. And I think a lot of times, you know, it wasn't really perceived, you know, as you said, like the even the coverage wasn't like it was a real sport. So preserving the sites associated with it, they kind of go in and out. And um, I think people in the preservation community are familiar with this, where, you know, things that perhaps aren't perceived as these important, you know, cultural touchstones just kind of like are allowed to be demolished or moved or, or whatever. And so we sort of lose these places. So it's I think it's incumbent on people listening to think about these sorts of aspects of culture and and how we protect them and how we preserve them. And and also, as you said, kind of talking to the people associated with it, because so much of the, the story of Derby is wrapped up in the people, which makes me you know, want to ask another question before we kind of draw to a conclusion here. But you know, I was wondering, about... um, I'm sorry, oh, to, sure. uh, I just wanted to share actually um an interesting and actually quite sad preservation related moment um, in the history of roller skating and roller derby. Sure. I'm glad you, um, glad you inter- interceded with that. I'd love to hear it. Yeah. Um, so as I was learning to roller skate, um, in addition to my, my little uh, cracked sidewalks of Brooklyn, um, I learned to roller skate from the skate community at Empire Roller Disco um, in Brooklyn, which was a, uh, according to stories I've heard, the birthplace of roller disco. And it had been around since, I don't know, the 20s or 30s. Um, and there were attempts made to get it landmarked as a, you know, as a historical site. Um, but due to a variety of factors, some of which I think were probably racism, um, it wasn't. Uh, the city passed on that. And um, it ended up getting sold off. And now it's a self-storage facility. And to me, refusing to let this, like, this amazing, iconic Brooklyn space that had given rise to these phenomenal skate communities, like predominantly Black roller disco and skate communities, um, to just let that go and be turned into something that's literally a place where people put things they don't want. Um, it's such a poignant, quite the statement. Yeah. Tragic moment for me. So um, I have a really hard time walking past that space because it, it used to be something so important and irreplaceable and now it's nothing. Well, I think every preservationist listening to this is nodding their head to you right now. So they're all in agreement and, you know, it's sort of like what I was saying where it's like, these sites perhaps that aren't associated with dominant communities or, um, you know, perhaps are just perceived as sort of, well, it's just a sport or it's just, you know, this or that. You can write it off in so many different ways. Um, it's easy to to kind of lose those, but they, they tell such an important story about our culture and where we were just as important, if not more important than these other, you know, really important, quote unquote, architectural sites. And so I think the preservation community definitely has embraced that. The broader community sometimes doesn't always get that, unfortunately, sometimes until it's too late. Um, and then you end up with a place where you cast away your junk. Um, so I was going to ask, though, I'm curious, you know, we're talking about sort of the evolution of Derby. And um, one question I had, too, is about it, it seems, you know, you talked about like sort of the empowerment piece of that. But also even today, it, it seems like that the, the compared to other sports, LGBTQ, uh, the LGBTQIA community um, seems to have embraced and really been invited into the fold of roller derby. 
is that always been the case or is that sort of another part of this evolution? And, and is that, you know, will, will that be in, in the in the next book to kind of take a look at how that has kind of evolved? I'm curious about that piece because that's a big part of the evolution, I think, too. Yeah. Um, when I got involved um, in, you know, what I was calling the third wave of roller derby, it was a very queer sport. Um, I think the sort of like underground punk rock alternative vibes combined with um, the fact that, uh, you know, a lot of people, you know, who were coming to the sport early on kind of saw themselves like outcasts or alternative or like didn't really relate to some of the mainstream sports that women tended to play at the time. Um, I think all of those were factors in um, creating a really, really um, open space for uh, gay, bisexual, um, lesbian skaters. And it was actually while I was skating that modern roller derby started to grapple with the question of how do we include trans skaters? What does it mean to be a women's sport? Um, And that was... I don't want to say that roller derby has always done it well, um, but we were having those conversations back in the mid to late 2000s. And um, and it was one of the sports that I'm aware of that earliest said, if you identify as a woman, you play women's roller derby, like you're welcome here. And there have been um, some interesting films on that. I'm blanking on the title, um, but there was a really cool film about uh vr which was the machine regime which started as a a uh, queer female um roller derby organization um that you know they played bouts at roller con things like that but then over time they realized that even their name wasn't inclusive to people who um identified with different genders and um uh so that's when they turned themselves into vr um and they they were making a documentary and it ended up being about gender in certain ways. And it highlighted um, a trans girl who loved sports, but really didn't have a place in sports until she found roller derby. Um, and I I hate that, that the country and Republicans have gotten really invested in this vindictive campaign to cast trans girls and gender non-conforming kids out of sports. Um, Sports are a place where you can develop confidence, strength, both physical and mental. Um, There's be part of a community. And and the idea that people are trying to push these kids, these girls out of these spaces is absolutely tragic to me. And I think that's one of the reasons that it's so important that roller derby keep existing is because that is a space where anyone who identifies with different genders can find a team at a place. Yeah, I think it's fascinating, too, that you point out that it's one of the first sports to kind of grapple with that, because when you're talking about the time frame of that, it's pretty early in the in the context of that conversation, at least here in the United States, um, at least this modern conversation around around gender and gender expression. So um, fascinating. I mean, we could go on and on with you. This is really cool. I'm curious, what are you working on now? I mean, obviously, you put this out on Derby Life. You you your your day job is is publishing and things like that. But are you do you still do you still find joy in writing and what are you working on now? 
Yeah. Um, I do definitely still find joy in writing and um, I've had a book kind of cooking for a while. I had started, I had a false start around um, it being really specifically dialed into um, how money works in the book publishing industry um, and how we can kind of make a better, more inclusive publishing industry, especially through an economic lens. Um, ultimately, I realized that it was quite a depressing book, and I wrote 7,000 words on Amazon and the harms it's doing, and uh, <laughs> uh, realized it was sort of negatively impacting my um, my joy in my day-to-day life. So I put that version in a drawer, but I'd like to revive parts of it as um, as a treatise about how to make a living as a creative person. So um, once I have my feet a little bit more under me at my day job at Feminist Press, I want to pick that one back up and run with it. Cool. Well, we'll definitely put a link to all of your um, books and websites and Feminist Press and everything like that in the show notes. Before we go, we ask everyone this. Do you have a favorite historic place or site? Wow. Um, I want to name two. Um, The first one I ever really connected with... um, it's where I grew up in Rye, New York. It's called the Square House. Um, and it was an old historic inn back in the colonial days that, you know, like every historic inn on the post road, George Washington allegedly stayed at. Um, they had a summer camp where you would come, you would dress up like a colonial person. You would learn crafts like candle dipping and punch tin lanterns. Um and then actually they taught us to be volunteer docents. So for a few years as a preteen, I, um, yeah, I wore a mop cap and uh, <laughs> told people about the history of the square house. And I think that was my first real uh, face-to-face experience with the concept of like preservation and historical place. Um, and then the one that I don't know. I'm a, most just like resonates with me. Um, the Chrysler building is my absolute all time favorite New York building. Uh, it just makes me feel like home anytime I see it. Those are two great examples. And I, I love the that this early experience with the historic site. I'm sure people who run historic sites who are listening um, lit up when they heard that and that you, you know, have gone on to these wonderful things and that you uh, perhaps some of your ability to talk and, and express yourself comes from those early days as a, a mob capped interpreter. So <laughs> maybe, maybe just a, just a hair of it. So this has been so much fun. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing this and um, looking forward to seeing what you write next. Thanks so much. This has been so delightful. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's story, head over to PreserveCast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes. Don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing, commenting, and leaving a review. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PreserveCast for even more. PreserveCast is currently recorded in Walkersville, Maryland, and sponsored by the 1772 Foundation, and powered by Preservation Maryland. Thanks for listening and keep on preserving.